0: Okay, so let's get into American internationalism and imperialism. This is going to be 1867 to 1917. Now, before we really get into the meat of things, let's start off with a little overview. So, unlike the previous Manifest Destiny ideas where U.S. expansion was Specifically in North America, this new Manifest Destiny, so we just slapped new on on the front of it and continued on with Manifest Destiny. Anyway, it's going to extend into these really heavy populated islands. that are going to be really far from the U.S. and they're going to be viewed for the purpose of becoming colonies. Now, we don't want them to be territories or states, just colonies. So the new imperial influence of the U.S. is going to start with the Spanish-American War in 1898. So this is where the U.S. gains Hawaii, Puerto Rico, uh, Guam, and the Philippines. Then we move into the Panama Canal Zone in 1903. Uh, There's the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, and this is where the U.S. becomes what was considered the policeman of the western hemisphere and this is going to justify numerous invasions of the latin american countries then we move into dollar diplomacy and moral diplomacy dollar diplomacy is going to be under taft while moral diplomacy is under wilson now this dollar diplomacy is where the government is going to protect with force any of the american investments that are going to be abroad while the moral diplomacy is initially it's an anti-imperialist you know, idea, but it's, we're going to start invading more countries than any other president under Wilson. And this is going to include Mexico at the time. Now, a participation in a series of these global conflicts is going to propel the United States into a position of what was considered to be international power with a whole renewing of these domestic debates over the nation's um, proper role in the war. In the late 19th century and the early 20th century, we're going to get new U.S. territorial ambitions and acquisitions in the Western Hemisphere, and specifically the Pacific that are going to accompany these heightened public debates over what our role is. The imperialists are going to cite economic opportunities, racial theories, um, competition with other empires, specifically Europe, and the perception in the 1890s that the Western frontier was closed to argue that Americans were destined to expand their culture and institutions to peoples around the globe. So it's a very, uh, it's a very European idea or English idea. Alright, so let's start off with the post-Civil War expansion and diplomatic influence. Now, we have the Monroe Monroe Doctrine in Mexico. Now, during the U.S. Civil War, France is going to invade Mexico. The Emperor, Napoleon III, and the Mexican Monarchists are going to support an Austrian noble named Maximilian as the new King of Mexico. The U.S. and many of the other foreign governments are going to refuse to recognize him as a legitimate leader of Mexico. After the Civil War, the U.S. in 1866 is going to begin sending arms to Mexican rebel leaders like Benito Juarez and Porofia Diaz. Maximilian is going to invite the ex-Confederates to live in Mexico. Napoleon III is going to realize that uh, Maximilian is holding... On power was very tenuous, and he's going to be concerned with the mounting tensions with Prussia in Europe, and he's going to pull the French troops out. Now, despite U.S. pressure and urgings from Napoleon, Maximilian is going to refuse to abdicate. He was arrested. He's going to be executed by the Mexican military. Benito will become the next president of Mexico once again. So he was before, and then Maximilian took over, and now he's back. Now, the significance of all this is that the U.S. demonstrated it was willing to use diplomacy, provide military supplies, and perhaps even use military force to preserve this Monroe Doctrine. Then we get into the purchase of Alaska in 1867. Now, Russia was overextended in North America and realized another war with Britain would probably mean a British takeover of Alaska. So, to kind of, you know, cut that man out, they're going to end up selling us, obviously. All okay. right. so the Alaskan fur trade is going to be slowed considerably, and Alaska was now a drag on the Russian budget. They didn't need it. The Secretary of State, Henry Seward, will sign a treaty with Russia to purchase Alaska for $7.2 million. I mean, you know. All that land, wouldn't think it's much, that much. Now, critics of this are going to call this Seward's Folly because they believe that he purchased a wasteland. Now, we know today that's incorrect. Uh, the U.S. in the midst of the Reconstruction and the economic issues were seen as more important than buying Alaska. is so going to feel obligated to accept Russia's offer as Russia had supported the Union during the Civil War. It's kind of like a tit-for-tat kind of thing. The region later is going to provide... Um, abundance in furs, fish, and gold. And then later in the 20th century, Alaska becomes a major source of oil. Now let's get into the causes of the <coughs> excuse me. Expansionism in the late 19th century. Now the end of the frontier. You know, this is going to be like the 1890 census report. Many Americans are going to believe that the U.S. had to expand or it was going to explode. Now, there's going to be an increase in population, wealth, and industrial production. There's going to be, de- there's going to be a demand for more raw materials and resources because of this. Some U.S. political leaders believed that the existing resources in the U.S. might eventually dry up, which we know to be true. Uh, The Panic of 1893 is going to convince some businessmen that new markets were needed to absorb the U.S., overproduction of goods. There's going to be labor violence and agrarian unrest, and we talked about that with the populism. This is going to be rampant in the 1880s and the 1890s. Expansionists are going to see new overseas markets as a possible safety valve for the U.S. internal pressure. So, you know, we're able to push out into these other areas. The experience of subjugating the Plains Indian tribes after the Civil War had already established a precedent for exerting colonial control over dependent people. Or over sovereign nations. International trade is going to become increasingly important to the US economy in the late 19th century. So the US became the leading industrial power in the 1890s and some Americans sought new uh, colonies to expand markets further. The US is going to seek to compete with Europe for overseas empires. Now some of the leaders are going to seek great power internationally and they were going to want that status for the United States. By 1914, Europeans controlled eighty-four, eighty-four, sorry, got a little southern there, eighty-four percent of all land on the globe. So you know, European got Europe kind of spread out everywhere. Specifically, England, Germany was America's biggest imperialist foe, and it spurred. And it spurred it into imperialism. So Germany was very aggressive, and it sought colonies in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean. So Germany is also going to be one of the big ones. So you've got England, you've got Germany, and you've got us. Okay, so there's going to be some proponents of this U.S. expansion, like Captain Alfred Thayer Mahan. Now, he's going to write the influence of sea power upon history in 1890. Now, the thesis of this was that history showed that control of the sea was the key to world dominance and protecting one's global empire. The book is going to help to stimulate a naval arms race among the great powers, and it's going to prompt U.S. leaders to build up the U.S. Navy. The U.S. is also going to seek to acquire defensive naval bases and refueling stations strategically placed on world's oceans like Hawaii and other Pacific Islands. So you kind of see where Hawaii is starting to fit into this. By 1900, the U.S. had the world's third most powerful navy. Navy. Cannot talk. Theodore Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge advocated for the expansion. They believed in social Darwinism, so that whole idea of the survival of the fittest, and it meant that the world would be controlled by the strongest and the fittest nations. The stronger nations would dominate the weak ones, and this was simply part of the natural law. If the U.S. was to survive the competition of modern states, it would have to become an imperial power. Roosevelt also believed that the U.S. should build a canal across the isthmus of Central America to link the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans, and he will later accomplish that when he com- becomes president. Now, Senator Albert Breveridge is going to state that the U.S. was part of a worldwide movement of the superior white race, and imperiali- imperialistic expansion was thus ordained by God. This should so- sound very um, familiar. Manifest Destiny, anyone? Right, Josiah Strong, he's going to write "Our Country" in 1885. Now he was a Protestant evangel- evangelical clergyman who was a leader of the Social Gospel movement. He's going to advocate the superiority of Anglo-Saxon citizen uh, the civilization, and he's going to urge the U.S. to stop or sorry, not to stop, but to spread religion and democratic values to what he considered to be the backward people of the American West. And some historians believe his book also influenced the U.S. imperialistic motives. The yellow journalism of Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst is going to spark America's interest abroad. These newspaper tycoons are going to push aggressively for a modern navy of steel Ships. Later, they're going to pressure the U.S. government to go to war against Spain to increase our influence in Cuba. Now, international issues. So this is going to run for a almost ten years, nine years, eighteen eighty nine to eighteen ninety eight. So there's going to be the Samoa crisis at Pago Pago, the U.S. and German navies nearly fought in 1889 over control of these islands. But Germany did not wish to provoke the U.S. into future um, hostilities, and they agreed to a settlement. The issue was resolved in 1900 with a treaty between Germany and Britain. The U.S. gained some of these these, uh, Samoan territories, today known as American Samoa, including the very valuable port of Pago Pago. Germany is going to receive... The two largest islands and Britain is going to be compensated with other territories in the Pacific. Now, keep in mind, these people are being compensated by territory that does not belong to them. Brittany would say capitalism. All right, so the Venezuela boundary dispute, 1895 to 1896, so it didn't take, you know, too, too long. The boundary between uh, the British Guiana and Venezuela was in dispute for much of the 19th century. And if you don't know where those areas are, this is going to be in South America. French Guiana, uh, or sorry, British Guiana would eventually, you know, become French Guiana. So the issue is going to come to a head when gold is discovered in the border region. So again, there's that capitalism. President Grover, Cleveland is going to warn Britain not to take any of the Venezuelan territories and because such an action would actually violate the Monroe Doctrine. The U.S. is going to seek to assert itself in the Western Hemisphere and demand that, the, that uh, Britain submit the dispute to international arbitration. Britain will deny the legality of the Monroe Doctrine and refuse international arbitration. Cleveland will get support from Congress for the creation of an international commission of experts who would create an equitable border between Venezuela and British Guiana. If Britain refused to accept it and attacked Venezuela, the U.S. would go to war. Mm-hmm. Britain didn't want war, despite having a vastly superior navy and considered to international arbitration. Basically, they had enough irons in the fire and they didn't want to mess with us anymore. The Boer War in South America. America was taking considerable British energy, and a war with the U.S. would make Britain vulnerable in protecting its interests internationally. So, like I said, they were tied up. Mm -hmm. Canada was vulnerable to uh, U.S. invasion at at this time. The Britain Merchant Marine was vulnerable to attack by U.S. commerce raiders. Britain was also worried about Germany's growing navy and Russian and French colonial ambitions. Like I said, irons in the fire. Now, the results of this, the prestige of the Monroe Doctrine was enhanced. Latin American republics were impressed by the U.S. determination to protect them from European aggression. The, uh, the Brits are going to seek to nurture its friendship with the U.S. in light of all these threats, you know, from the great powers. Uh, the U.S. was now free to pursue an aggressive foreign policy. So now we get to Hawaii. Beautiful place. Anyway, since the 19th century, the U.S. came to view Hawaii as an extension of the U.S. Pacific coast. In 1890, the McKinley Tariff raised barriers against Hawaiian sugar. American sugar planters in Hawaii then sought for the U.S. to annex Hawaii as it would eliminate those tariffs. Queen Lili Kulani insisted Hawaiians should control Hawaii because it's theirs. American planters in Hawaii were alarmed at the Queen's policies and the U.S. tariff. A small group of white planters, which were led by Sanford B. Dole, will overthrow the Queen in 1893. Planters were assisted by U.S. troops, who landed under unauthorized orders of the U.S. minister in Honolulu. Uh, Stevens, John C. Stevens, wrote to the U.S. government that the Hawaiian pear is now fully ripe And this is the golden hour for the U.S. to pluck it. Kind of simplifying things there a little bit, weren't we, Stevens? Anyway, a treaty for annexation was rushed to Washington. Before the treaty passed the Senate, Cleveland assumed office and refused to sign any annexation bill. An investigation showed a majority of Hawaiians did not... Favor annexation. The new provisional government of Hawaii was found to have been established by force. Cleveland ordered the removal of U.S. troops. Now, the results Cleveland was unsuccessful in restoring the Queen to power. U.S. public opinion sympathized with the white planters. Surprise, surprise. Revolutionaries proclaimed a Hawaiian Republic on July 4th, oddly enough, 1894, with Dole as president. Dole. I say it again. Like, you know, the bananas. Just thought I'd put that out there. The annexation of Hawaii Hawaii was abandoned until 1898 when the U.S. acquired it during the Spanish-American War. Uh, The struggle over Hawaii led to the first full-fledged imperialistic debate in U.S. history. Cleveland was (laughs) heavily... Heavily criticized for trying to block the new manifest destiny. Same as old. Cleveland's motives were honorable considering the rampant international imperialism at the time. Cuba. Atrocities in Cuba committed by Spanish authorities in the 1890s were sensationalized or fabricated by the yellow press. So this is Hearst and uh, Pulitzer. Which is funny because, you know, we call it the Pulitzer Prize when he was making crap up. Anyway. Uh, Spanish misrule plus the high Wilson-Gorman tariff of 1894 damaged Cuba's sugar-based economy. Many plantations were owned by Americans similar to Hawaii, and a new Cuban rebellion in the 1890s resulted in American, Spanish, and Cuban property losses. Reconcentration. The Spanish military concentrated masses of Cuban civilians in areas under their control during the revolt. See why Cuba has a problem with us? About 100,000 people died between 1896 and 1898. Two years. 100,000 people. That's a lot. Cleveland refused to intervene. Intervene. Intervene and issued a neutrality proclamation. U.S. mediation was offered in the conflict, but Spain refused. Pulitzer and Hearst, here they come again, competed intensely with one another over newspaper sales. Hearst sent notable artist Frederick Remington to Cuba to draw sketches regarding Spanish atrocities against Cubans and the misconduct against Americans. When Remington reported their conditions were not bad enough to warrant hostilities, Randolph allegedly replied, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. Remington depicted Spanish customs officials as brutally disrobing and searching an American woman. In reality, female attendants did the duty. McKinley's ascension to the presidency in 1897 resulted in a stronger rhetoric toward Spain. In autumn of 1897, McKinley came close to delivering an ultimatum to Spain that would have resulted in war. Spain ended reconcentration in 1897 and gave some autonomy to the Cubans, and it appeared that war might be avoided. Enter the, Enter the Cuban Revolt. Spanish citizens in Cuba rioted to protest Spain's talk of granting Cuba some degree of self-government. It's their country. The U.S. sent the battleship Maine to Cuba in 1898. The purpose was to protect and evacuate Americans if danger occurred, while also giving voice to U.S. popular opinion regarding Spain's reconcentration policies. The ship was sent ostensibly as a friendly visit. I don't know about you, but if I see a battleship, I don't think friendly. The explosion of the USS Maine on February 15, 1898, became the immediate cause of Spanish-American aggression, or the Spanish-American War. 266 officers and men died. A Spanish investigation announced that the explosion occurred within the ship and was accidental. American reports blamed the blast on a Spanish submarine mine. The Yellow Press, here they are again, helped stoke public opinion. In 1976, a U.S. Navy report concluded that the blast inside the ship was accidental and that Spain had no involvement. Americans now cried for war, even though, you know, obviously 1976 a lot later. But we know now that it was... It was an accident. Spain didn't do it. But Americans are going to be like, remember the main! To hell with Spain! Chaz is not amused. So the Spanish-American War in 1898. A debate emerged regarding U.S. action against Spain. Spain agreed to U.S. demands of ending reconcentration and seeking an armistice with Cuban rebels. President McKinley and the American businessman community did not want war, but the yellow press forced the issue. McKinley was criticized by U.S. imperialists for not being more aggressive with Spain, even though we shouldn't have. He did not see how Cuba independence would help the U.S. Mark Hanna and Wall Street did not want war as it might interfere with current U.S. trade in Cuba, therefore hurting the economy, therefore hurting their stocks. The American public, prodded by the yellow press, shame on them, demanded war, to free the abused Cubans. Demands of preserving the power of the Republican Party was the biggest factor in McKinley's decision for war. I mean, he'd been bought and paid for anyway, so... McKinley sent a war message to Congress on April 11th of 1898. His stated goal was to free the oppressed Cubans, and Congress complied. The Teller Amendment. This is where the U.S. proclaimed that once it overthrew Spain and Cuba, the Cubans would have their freedom. The U.S. sought international support for a war against Spain. Why? Why are we fighting? We've been at a war, what, 30 years at this time? We're like, we let's do it again. The U.S. took the Philippines from Spain... While Secretary of War was away, Under Secretary of War Theodore Roosevelt cabled Commodore George Dewey to attack Spain and the Philippines in the event of war. McKinley subsequently confirmed these instructions. The Battle of Manila Bay. May 1898, Dewey's six warships sailed into Manila Harbor and destroyed all 11 of Spain's warships. Nearly 400 Spaniards died. No American was killed in this action. Germany arrived with five warships, more powerful than Dewey's fleet, ostensibly seeking to protect German citizens and interests in Manila. Although warships from other countries, like Britain, France, and Japan, were also present, Germany's actions were pro- uh, provocative. Dewey threatened the German commander with war as soon as you like. Just a tad aggressive. Germany, its bluff had been called. <clears throat> its bluff had been called by the U.S. withdrew. Three months later, American troops arrived and captured the city of Manila in August. U.S. troops were aided by by Filipino insurgents led by Emilio Aguinaldo. A-G-U-I-N-A-L-D-O. The U.S. promised Aguinaldo independence for the Philippines once Spain was defeated. After the war, however, the U.S. annexed the Philippines and Avogado led led an insurrection against the U.S. All right, so... We are now to July of 1898, and we're going to annex Hawaii. The U.S. used the pretense of needing Hawaii as a naval station in order to send supplies and reinforcements to Dewey in Manila Harbor. The white-dominated government in Hawaii sorry, <coughs> was eager to be annexed, just like Texas had been earlier. Congress and McKinley approved a joint resolution of annexation. Hawaiians were granted U.S. citizenship and received full territorial status in 1900. Then we're going to go invade Cuba. The Spanish fleet was blockaded and eventually destroyed in the Santiago Harbor by the stronger U.S. fleet. The invading U.S. Army took the high ground near Santiago without serious opposition. Teddy Roosevelt's Regiment of Rough Riders was part of the invading army that took the heights, although popularly led falsely Attributed to the victory of the Rough Riders, Roosevelt would be president of the U.S. only three years later. Obviously, this um, impression stuck with people. Two like regiments provided heavy support, and they comprised about 25% of the invasion force. Spain surrendered Santiago in early July. There were 379 that died in battle, and over 5,000 due to disease, especially malaria, for the U.S., then there's the U.S. invasion of Puerto Rico. The U.S. sought to take the island before the war, with Spain ended. Most of the population regarded U.S. soldiers as liberating heroes. Spain signed an armistice on August 12, 1898, officially ending hostilities. The Treaty of Paris. Cuba gained, gained its freedom from Spain. The U.S. received the Pacific island of Guam, which it had captured early in the war. The U.S. also gained Puerto Rico, the last vestige of Spain's American empire. The Philippines Philippines issue became a major dilemma in the negotiations. U.S. forces took Manila the day after Spain sued for peace, so it was not legally one of the U.S. conquests during the war. The U.S. agreed to pay Spain $20 million for the Philippines. President McKinley was then presented with a dilemma: the Philippines would be a valuable colony for the U.S., but he did not feel the U.S. should give the islands—or sorry—and he did not feel the U.S. should give back the islands to Spain, especially after fighting a war to free Cuba. Hmm. Uh, if it was left alone, the Philippines might fall into anarchy and/or be seized by another empire, like, say, Germany. Uh, He believed that he needed to take the Philippines and leave independence for later. He subsequently told a group of reporters that God had guided him to take the Philippines. Meh. An uh, an imperialism debate in the U.S. emerged with this U.S. victory, so the Philippine issue. The expansionist pressure from various U.S. groups are going to force McKinley's hand. The Philippines and Hawaii were steps towards U.S. influence and increased commerce in Asia, especially China. Protestant missionaries were eager to convert Catholic Filipinos and spread what they considered the superior Anglo-Saxon civilization. Businessmen like Marcus Hanna are going to clamor for the new Philippine market, and raw materials were very desirable in the area. Democrats were tended to be more anti imperialistic, especially William Jennings Bryan, which we talked about uh, in the last chapter. He feared foreign issues would overshadow. These needed reforms in the U.S. Some feared foreign workers would provide cheap labor that would lower wages at home. Others feared that U.S. factories would be relocated overseas. Some were concerned that new colonies would require a permanent standing army that would put U.S. soldiers in danger. Higher taxes would occur to pay for such an army. Some feared a flood of uncivilized, or what they thought to be, uncivilized immigrants. The Anti-Imperialist League. Now, this was, a fo- this was formed to oppose McKinley's expansionism. It included the presidents of Stanford and Harvard universities, philosopher William James, Mark Twain, who's very much imperialistic, anti-imperialistic, sorry, uh, Samuel Gompers, which we've talked about, and Andrew Carnegie. They argued annexation of the Philippines violated the consent of the governed philosophy that was in the Declaration of Independence. They argued despotism abroad might lead to despotism at home, and nobody wanted a monarch. They feared the U.S. would be entangled politically and militarily in Asia. The Senate passed the treaty in February of 1899 with the unexpected support of Bryan. Bryan claimed the sooner the U.S. passed the treaty, the sooner the Filipinos would get their independence, which is what his idea was. The Insular Cases, <clears throat> I-N-S-U-L-A-R. Supreme Court cases address the, the extent to which constitutional rights applied to peoples of newly acquired territories. 1901, uh, the 1901 Supreme Court ruling found that some rights are fundamental and apply to all American territories, while other rights are procedural and should not be imposed upon those unfamiliar with American law. Congress must much. Uh, Congress must determine which procedural rights apply in these unincorporated territories. Therefore, the Constitution does not follow the flag. So just because there is an American flag does not mean the Constitution goes with it. Cuban independence. The U.S. withdrew from Cuba in 1902 in honor of the Teller Amendment. Then we got the Platt Amendment in 1902, and it was passed to replace that Teller Amendment, and it sought to ensure Cuba would not be vulnerable to European powers and then would maintain U.S. influence in Cuban affairs. Cubans were forced to incorporate the Platt Amendment into their own constitution of 1901. Now, the provisions that went with this is Cuba bound itself not to impair their independence by treaty or by contracting a debt beyond their resources. The U.S. government had the right to approve all Cuban territories. The U.S. could send troops to restore order if chaos broke out, and Cuba promised to sell or lease needed coaling or naval stations, like Guantanamo Bay Naval Base, because it's, in its, it's still controlled by the U.S. today. <coughs> Now, as a result of the Spanish American War, the U.S. gained four new colonies Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines. Now, U.S. nationalism is going to increase after the Spanish American War. The Secretary, Secretary of State John Hay called it a splendid little war. The U.S. established an overseas empire for the first time. European powers gave the U.S. more respect while the Monroe Doctrine was enhanced. The war helped heal the post-Civil War rift between North and South as soldiers from both regions fought side by side, and nationalism was a result of an urban, mass-culture, industrial society. The diplomatic consequences of it, however... Britain became an ally of the U.S., while Germany grew more frustrated with limited imperialistic successes. So, you can kind of see a war looming there already. The Philippines drew the U.S. into Asian affairs, while the U.S. became increasingly concerned with Japanese expansion. Hello, war. The U.S. undertook a large naval buildup, which is always a precursor. And Latin America viewed rising U.S. power and the Monroe Doctrine with suspicion, for obvious reasons. The Philippine insurrection... Filipinos had assumed they would be granted freedom after the war, just like Cuba had been. The U.S. Senate narrowly blocked such a resolution, and the Philippines became a protectorate. So they were tragically deceived, even though they thought, you know, they thought they were going to get freedom. And no, open rebellion began in 1899 when Agu- Aguinaldo uh, declared Philippines independent. Savage fighting resulted in more casualties than in the Spanish-American War. The Filipino rebels fled to the jungle where they waged effective guerrilla warfare, and American troops res- responded with atrocities. In all, 4,300 Americans and 57,000 Filipinos died. Anti-imperialistic intensified <clears throat> intensified their protests. They claimed the U.S. fight to free Cuba morphed into a war 10,000 miles away to deprive Filipinos of their freedom, and the atrocity stories boosted their protest. The insurrection was finally broken in 1901 when Alondado was captured. The Philippine Commission was created to make appropriate recommendations in 1901, and it was led by William Taft, who called Filipinos, Filipinos his little brown brothers. The U.S. instituted education, sanitation, public health, and infrastructure reforms through Filipinos, though Filipinos remained resentful. And the Fili- Philippines finally got its independence on July 4th, here we go again, 1946. So, like, you know, what, 45 years later? Just just around the corner, right? Just around the corner. Alright, so the open-door policy in China. Foreign powers in China sought the huge Chinese market and the opportunity to convert the Chinese to Christianity. Japan accepted. By the late 19th century, Japan... Japan and Western European powers had carved much of China into separate spheres of influence. Within each sphere, one nation held economic dominance. Yet in the 1850s, the U.S. had signed several trade deals with China while American missionaries were active in China. Now the U.S. manufacturers were fearing that Chinese markets would be monopolized by European powers and Japan. So there's going to be an open-door note in the summer of 1899. It will be issued by Secretary of State John Hay. Now, this is the ex-Lincoln secretary. Now, due to its geographic distance from China, the U.S. feared it might lose access to China if it didn't act quickly. It urged all the great powers to agree that their spheres of influence would respect certain Chinese rights and the ideal of fair economic competition. The open-door policy gained wide acceptance in the U.S., but the policy was weak and didn't gain international acceptance. the Boxer Rebellion of 1900. So you can see this stuff is just like back to back to back. Millions of Chinese people were enraged at being subjugated by imperial powers. The Boxers, which were an extreme group of Chinese nationalists, killed over 200 missionaries and other whites, while a number of foreign diplomats were besieged in Beijing. A multinational force of about 18,000 arrived to put down the rebellion. It included Japan, Russia, Britain, Germany, France, and the U.S., who contributed ourselves 2,500 troops. The victorious allies assessed an indemnity of $333 million on China, and the U.S. share was $24.5 million. The U.S. eventually forgave $18 million of this indemnity. The Chinese government set aside money to educate a select group of Chinese students in the U.S. as a gesture of goodwill. These students later played a significant role in westernizing Asia. Hay announced in nineteen hundred that henceforth the open door would embrace the territorial integrity of China in its commercial treaties. He sought to eliminate the carvings of China after, not the carving, sorry, the carving up of China after the Boxer Rebellion, and he did not ask for formal acceptances. China was then spared partition during these wars, and this was probably due more to distrust among the great powers than uh, anything about Hay's policy. Oh, Teddy Roosevelt. It's time for him to be elected. So, the election of 1900. Now, the Republicans nominated William McKinley McKinley for his second term. He'd won the war. He'd acquired territory. um, He protected the gold standard, and he brought economic prosperity. The party platform endorsed prosperity, the gold standard, and overseas expansion. Roosevelt was nominated for vice president. The Democrats again nominated William Jennings Bryan. The party's platform was very passe and again pushed for free silver and antitrust measures. Between 60 and 88% of Americans were poor and the Democrats hoped to attract this large block of voters. McKinley defeated Bryan 292 to 155 in the Electoral College. Obviously, you know, that I didn't work out. McKinley was assassinated September of 1901, so he didn't get, you know, he wasn't very alone, by a deranged anarchist. Uh, he was a Polish immigrant named Leon I couldn't tell you what his last name was because I don't know how to pro- pronounce it. Uh, probably, yeah, no. We'll look at that later. Roosevelt became the youngest president in U.S. history at age 42. Keep that in mind. The uh, The youngest at 42. Anyway, so Roosevelt pledged he would carry out McKinley's policies. Uh, his progressive presidency stood in a stark contrast to McKinley's old guard republicanism, though. Now, his foreign policy. He was the first U.S. president to play a significant role in world affairs. He had his whole big stick policy, you know, speak softly but carry a big stick, resulted in imperialism in the Western Hemisphere. He was a major proponent of military and naval preparedness. He's the reason we have the Panama Canal. So in 1903, the Spanish-American War is going to is- illustrate that the U.S. military had a need for a canal to connect the Atlantic and Pacific Pacific Oceans. The U.S. now had to protect Puerto Rico, Hawaii, uh, the Philippines, and their merchant ships. Britain agreed to give U.S. the right to build a canal and the right to forfeit it as well. The Colombian Senate rejected a treaty with the U.S. for a canal in Panama, which was part of Colombia, as they viewed growing American power and motives with suspicion. So we're going to create it through gunboat diplomacy. French representative Philippe bouillon very <clears throat> worked with Panamanian uh, revolutionaries to raise a tiny army and win independence from Colombia. U.S. naval forces did not allow Colombian troops across the Isthmus and the Panamanians were victorious. In November of 1903, President Roosevelt officially recognized Panama. Now, his role in Panama is going to become very controversial. Although Americans initially saw Roosevelt's role in the Panama as legitimate, Roosevelt said in 1911, or, sorry, his claim in 1911, was that he took the canal, and this is going to spark a wave of controversy. The U.S. suffered diplomatically as it violated the spirit of its own Monroe Doctrine by tearing Panama loose from Colombia. Latin American countries resented the Colossus of the North after, it ta- after its taking of Puerto Rico, Cuba, and now Panama. And the Panama Canal was finally completed in 1914. The Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine now, the motivation for this was Roosevelt saw aggressive German and British bill collections in Latin America as a violation of the Monroe Doctrine. Venezuela and the Dominican Republic were in severe debt. So you had the Venezuelan crisis in 1902, where Germany sank two Venezuelan gunboats trying to seek forced payments of Venezuela's debt. In response, Roosevelt is going to devise a policy of the prevented, preventive intervention. and This is going to be known as the Roosevelt Corollary. Now, the policy. So, in future financial crises that concern Latin American debt, the U.S. would intervene take over custom houses, pay off debts, and keep European powers out of the Western Hemisphere. This is where we become the policemen of the Western Hemisphere. And this is going to contrast with the Monroe Doctrine that had merely told Europeans to stay out. Now we're doing it by force. The policy was a radical departure, but its association with the Monroe Doctrine helped it to gain public acceptance. Latin America saw the U.S. as this colossus of the North and continued with the bitter relations. The corollary was later used to justify major U.S. interventions and repeated landing of U.S. Marines in Latin America. In 1905, a treaty gave the U.S. supervisory powers over the Dominican tariff collections. So, in effect, the Dominican Republic became a protectorate of the U.S. Now, in Cuba, the U.S. kept high tariffs against Cuban sugar at the behest of U.S. sugar growers. The resulting recession in Cuba combined with the discontent over the Platt Amendment led to a Cuban Revolution in 1906. Roosevelt sent troops and they remained until 1909. U.S. troops would reoccupy Cuba in 1970 during World War I and remain until 1922. Now, his foreign policy in Asia. This is going to be from 1904 to 1905 and be called the Russo-Japanese War. Russia and Japan went over went to war over ports in Manchuria and Korea. Japan destroyed much of Russia's fleet, shocking the world with its rise to a formidable imperial power. Roosevelt sought to prevent either side from gaining a monopoly in Asia. He was concerned about the safety of the newly acquired Philippines. Japan secretly asked Roosevelt to help sponsor peace negotiations, and Tsar Nicholas II sought to negotiate peace so he could focus on internal Russian issues after the revolt of 1905. The Treaty of Portsmouth in New Hampshire, 1905. Now, the provisions for this were that Japan gained the southern half of Sakhalin, but not the northern half and received no indemnity from Russia. Russia retained north Sakhalin, but agreed to leave Manchuria. Russia Russia signed over a 25-year lease on the Port Arthur to Japan, and secretly Roosevelt agreed to accept future Japanese dominance of Korea. For his mediation, Teddy received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1906. Another reason for the award was his helping his helping to arrange an international conference at Agalceras, Spain, in 1906 to mediate, sorry, imperialistic disputes between France and Germany. Now, there's going to be a neg- couple negative results as well. The U.S. Russia relations are going to suffer as re- as Russia believed Roosevelt's treaty had robbed them of an eventual military victory over Japan. And the savage massacres of Russian Jews due to pogroms drew US, <clears throat> US protest. Japan felt robbed of its indemnity and blamed the US. A naval arms race between US and Japan in Asia resulted as a mutual distrust grew. San Francisco School Board Incident of 1906. Now, examples of continued U.S. nativism regarding Asians. The Chinese Exclusion Act had been passed in 1882, bringing Chinese immigration into the U.S. to a virtual halt. In 1906, 70,000 Japan immigrants came to California due to dislocations and tax burdens caused by the Russo-Japanese War. Californians feared being confronted with another yellow peril and feared race mixing. They formed the Influential Asian Exclusion League. San Francisco school officials ruled that Asian children should attend a special school. The school system was hard pressed in the face of a devastating nineteen oh six earthquake. Japan was furious over the discrimination, was highly sensitive to the race is- issues. Irresponsible talk of war appeared in the Yellow Press again, so they are. Roosevelt was concerned California might be provoking a major war with Japan. So he's going to invite the entire San Francisco school board to the White House and coerce them to repeal the order. There's going to be a gentleman's agreement that will be issued between U.S. and Japan, which will settle the issue. And Japan agreed to stop immigration to the U.S. And Californians agreed not to ban Japanese from public schools. The Great White Fleet. Fearing Japanese perception of the U.S. weakness, Roosevelt sent the Navy on a highly visible tour around the world between 1907 and 1909. The hulls of the 16 battleships were painted white, signifying peace. Though the tour was friendly, it was meant to send a message to Japan and the European powers that the U.S. Navy was formidable. Roosevelt regarded the tour as his most important contribution to peace. Then there's dollar diplomacy that we talked about earlier under uh, under Taft. Now there's going to be two aspects of it. The U.S. foreign policy is going to protect Wall Street dollars that are going to be invested abroad and that Taft is going to encourage Wall Street foreign investors to buttress U.S. foreign policy. He's going to seek to reduce rival powers like Germany from taking advantage of financial chaos in the Caribbean and U.S. bankers would strengthen U.S. defenses and foreign policies while bringing prosperity to the U.S. So this dollar diplomacy will replace big stick diplomacy. In the Caribbean, the U.S. government urged Wall Street bankers to pump money into Honduras and Haiti to keep out foreign, aka European, loans. In 1909, the U.S. seized loan money to pro-U.S. insurgents on Honduras and sent troops to seize custom houses. The insurgents won the revolution. Two years later, the new revolutionary government faced an insurrection and the U.S. sent troops to restore order. Now, ultimately, the U.S also sent forces to Cuba, Honduras, and the Dominican Republic. This was essentially a continuation of Roosevelt's corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. Latin America and U.S. anti-imperialists criticized this dollar diplomacy for underlying uh, underlying continued U.S. aggression in Central America and the Caribbean. Imperialism under Woodrow Wilson. Wilson hated imperialism and recoiled initially from an aggressive foreign policy. He's going to oppose the big stick policy and dollar diplomacy. didn't like either one of them. Yet Wilson would eventually intervene in Latin America more than any other president in the U.S. history. He received significant pressure from U.S. corporations who had invested money abroad and wanted that money protected. Anti-imperialist and anti-nativist policies under Wilson. Wilson initially proclaimed the U.S. would no longer offer special support to American investors in Latin America and China. He repealed the Panama Canal Tolls Act, which was ex- which had exempted U.S. shipping from tolls, and it provoked protest from Great Britain. <clears throat> Jones Act in, 19- in 1916 is where the U.S. granted the Philippines territorial status and promised independence, when a stable government was established, 30 years later, on July 4th, here we go again, the Philippines received their independence. The Jones Act of 1917 gave Puerto Ricans U.S. citizenship. Now, there's going to be a crisis with Japan. The California Legislature 1913 prohibited Japanese Americans from owning is also known as the Californian Alien Land Law. Japan protested the U.S. feared Japan might attack the Philippines, and Secretary of State Bryan went to California and convinced its government to ease its restrictions. See, California was not always the way California is today. Tensions between the U.S. and Japan were eased temporarily because of this. Imperialism in the Caribbean under Wilson. Wilson aimed to reinforce the Western Hemisphere during World War II because several countries in effect became uh, protectors of the U.S., but not officially. Uh... Wilson also kept Marines in Nicaragua to maintain order after, they'd been, after they had landed in 1912. The U.S. forces were sent to Haiti in 1914 and 1915 when its president was killed. And the purpose of this was to protect U.S. lives and property. And this is going to be urged by a large New York bank. And, <coughs> sorry, they got a little crazy. In 1960, U.S. Marines were sent to the Dominican Republic when Civil War broke out while the country remained debt Ridden U.S. Marines remained until 1934. In 1917, the U.S. purchased the Virgin Islands from Denmark. The Caribbean Sea was now dominated by the U.S. along with the Panama Canal. So now we get to that moral diplomacy, and this is Wilson, specifically in Mexico. The Mexican, Revo- Mexican Revolution began in 1910. Porfirio Diaz, dictator since ni- or 1876, was now opposed by the Mexican Indian masses and the frustrated middle class. By 1910, Americans owned 43% of property in Mexico. Other foreigners owned nearly 25%. 50,000 Americans lived in Mexico. Francisco Madero, a moderate revolutionary interested in reforms, replaced Diaz in 1911. Poor Mexicans revolted and in 1913 overthrew Madero. General Joreta, a full-blooded native, became president. Massive migration of Mexicans to the U.S. ensued. U.S. <clears throat> US interests in Mexico cried for US interest or sorry intervention for protection. Wilson eventually masked U.S. troops on the border and sent warships to Mexico warning Huerta that unless he abdicated the US would overthrow him. Wilson said saw Huerta as a, a brute and said, I'm gonna teach the South American republics to elect good men. This is a concrete example of his moral diplomacy. In nineteen fourteen he allowed U.S. arms to flow to the Carraza, and Francisco Pancho Villa, who were Huerta's rivals. In April 1914, Wilson ordered the Navy, before Congress could act, (coughs) who was seeking to intercept a German ship with arms for Huerta to seize Veracruz. The U.S. occupied the city for seven months. Congress and much of the American public were outraged due to this. Both Huerta and Carranza condemned the U.S. act. The ABC powers, or Argentina, Chile, and Brazil, offered to mediate just as a full scale war seemed inevitable. At, this is the uh, Niagara Falls Conference. The Huerta regime collapsed in July of 1914 and was succeeded by Carranza who was still resentful over U.S. action in Veracruz. Meanwhile, Pancho Villa emerged as Carraza's chief rival. Carraza was re- uh, reluctantly supported by the U.S., and Villa retaliated by killing 18 Americans at Santa Ysabel. This is going to be in Mexico. In January of 1916, same year, Villa's army shot up Columbus, New Mexico, killing 17 Americans. General John J. Pershing was ordered by Wilson to invade northern Mexico and subdue Pancho Villa. The U.S. forces penetrated 300 miles into northern Mexico, where they clashed with Carranza's forces and destroyed Villa's forces. The U.S. did not have Mexican permission to invade, and Villa was never captured but was ultimately <clears throat> assassinated in 1923. The U.S. eventually will, withdrew, withdrew, will withdraw from Mexico. Wilson's intervention in Mexico was seen as so egregious that both sides in Mexico's Civil War wanted the U.S. out. U.S. public and foreign pressure influenced Wilson to withdraw U.S. troops, and with threat of war with Germany looming, Wilson withdrew U.S. forces from Mexico in February of 1917. Wilson's foreign policy was so unpopular that it was flatly repudiated in the 1920s.